But okay, fortunately, if you want to pull that narrative, then then the Bible isn't God's word. Right. Because it's no longer perfect. It's reflecting, it's simply reflecting the culture. It's reflecting biases, negative biases. It's oppressive. And if it's all those things, it's no longer sufficient. It's no longer inerrant. It's no longer trustworthy. It's no longer God's word. God is not who he says he is. There is no salvation. You are dead in your sins. Yes, it's man, that serious. It, it is. I, I mean, we got Kyle fired up right now. Welcome to the Wikipedia Podcast. The Wikipedia Podcast is brought to you by Enemies Within the Church. And remember, you can go to enemieswithinthechurch.com and you can go ahead and order, well, Enemies Within the Church. That's what you can do there. That's a pretty exciting thing. You can also go and you can find Wikipedia and find all of our content right over there on enemieswithinthechurch.com. So go ahead and check that out. I am excited today about what we're going to be talking about because we're going to be talking about something that gets talked about quite a bit with the woke. In fact, it really is the spiritual Me Too movement. I think that's what we're <laughs> going to be talking about today quite a bit. The spiritual Me Too movement also uh, known as the story of David and Bathsheba is what uh, the woke go and say. But Kyle, what are we going to be looking at today? How, how are we going to be framing the story? We're going to be looking at the story of David and Uriah. I, and I think that's a really important distinction and one that everyone's going to be finding out about. But uh, before we get into that, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm this is something that's so easy to talk about because it 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 gets I mean, into so many passions like of mine. An hour and a half ahead of time. Yeah, right? we we did. We actually talked about this for longer than the this episode even is is, but it's because it's something exciting to talk about because there's so much value in it. Not even in just countering the woke narrative, but just value in the passage itself. So, I I'm doing good this week, and I'm excited and ready to talk about this, Sam. Uh, are you, you know, you feeling the same way? I, I really am. You, you know, one of the things that I really like, uh, to, to get into, and this is one of the things that I really like about Wikipedia is when it comes to this whole idea of like discernment type ministry is, is a lot of, you know, where, where we get pegged and, and have been pegged. A lot of the times you just end up talking about, Hey, this guy said this dumb thing. This person said this bad thing. Hey, this person, you know, look, they're a Marxist. Look, I mean, look, look at these kind of things we're really going to get into the passage and mm. really correct the passage. And, you know, scripture, uh, all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. And I really think, obviously it does have all of that in this passage of scripture, but it is really fun to go into actually look into the teaching on scripture as opposed to just always pointing out what how, what the other people are doing bad. But when we can go and expose the darkness with the light and show what the passage is really saying, that gets me pumped. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and if you haven't seen our episode on hermeneutics, I know we've mentioned that several times, but go watch our episode on hermeneutics because in in practice, those are the principles we're applying here. Right. And we won't be doing like a Bible study format, but we're using those principles to compare what the, the woke say versus what is God actually communicating. Uh, so, we, you know, we hope you enjoy this. You hope this is valuable and this helps you uh, get a clear understanding. Even if you already know the woke interpretation of this passage is wrong, we hope it gives you the clarity of why exactly it's problematic. Right. You, you know, and, and since we're on the topic of this, uh, we should consider, I'm not going to ask you, you know, since we're recording right now, what, what your opinion is. Uh but we should consider taking all of the popular woke passages and just doing a Bible study with them. Just going through a Bible hmm. study with that. I think that'd be maybe a kind of a cool thing to do. Uh, but we, we could discuss that later. But if you like that idea, let us know. And you can let us know at contactwokepedia at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. And let us know if you like that idea. If you want to see a Bible study yeah. or join us for a Bible study even. Maybe we could do it live. Who knows? Hmm. Uh, through the woke Bible passages. 
I'm just digging myself into more of a hole by throwing these ideas out here. But let us know what you think with contactwokipedia at gmail.com. But let's get into this. And, you know, Kyle, we need to start where the woke start a little bit. They they obviously believe that the main figure of this passage uh, when it comes to uh, this narrative in the story, the main figure is obviously Bathsheba. It's all about Bathsheba. And so, first of all, we should ask the question, what do we know about Bathsheba? Yeah, that's that's important because, and we're going to, I mean, spoilers, we're going to find that they add no context to the right. story. And I'm yeah, talking biblical not. context. But it's important to know these things. Who is the character? Have they been mentioned before? Is other passages that they're mentioned in, are they relevant? Uh you know, what, what is the, the history that's leading up to this moment? Because God is not simply going to comment on the immediate thing, but it's in a context of an unfolding narrative. Now, obvious thing, he was, she, she was the wife of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, who is one of David's mighty men. Who are basically superheroes. I mean, go go read the stories of what David's mighty men accomplished. It seems unreal. These these were true true giants among men, true heroes, and some of David's absolute closest friends. Uh, but what else do we know about Bathsheba? Yeah, you know, and I I will I will kind of point this out to you. You just said, you, you know, the first thing that we know about uh, Bathsheba is that she was the wife of Uriah, who was one of David's mighty men. We're already Mm -hmm. attaching her identity of what we know about her in the narrative. This character is inherently tied to to other characters. We don't go and say, well, Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. That's not how we go and describe Uriah. And we don't say, well, David, well, you you know, he, he, he was the king of the mighty man Uriah. We don't go and put it that way, but yet this is where you start when it comes to Bathsheba because there's not an insane amount that's known about Bathsheba. Um, Mm -hmm. But we do know that she was also the daughter of Eliam, I believe is how you pronounce uh, that name. My name's Sam Jones. I'm not very good at pronouncing biblical names. I'm just going to go and throw that out there. That is not a natural ability for me. My parents, like... They foresaw I wouldn't wasn't going to be able to spell or pronounce names, and so they said, "Sam Jones, that's your name." Um, but anyway, uh, which was also probably the same guy who was another one of David's mighty men. Yeah, and the only reason we're saying probably is because unlike Uriah, who has a title, Uriah the Hittite. Mm-hmm. So when we see that twice, we go, oh, okay, this is very obviously the same Uriah. Same thing doesn't happen with uh, Eliam, although there's only one other time he's ever mentioned that's in, uh, the name is ever brought up, and that's in the list of David's mighty men. So, right. so it's probably. It, everything indicates that that's the case. Right. And although, then also. Being, being Sam Jones, so Kyle, I do understand there are people who share names sometimes. Just saying, I do understand that. There are, which is why we're not going to say, because the Bible doesn't make, again, it doesn't make it 100% confirmed in the same way that it makes uh, Uriah the Hittite, but it's not idle speculation to say that that she's most likely the daughter of another one of David's mighty men, especially considering that it would be very likely that younger ones of David's mighty men would be married to daughters of older of the mighty men because they were on the run for a long time. They were the only people they had. Uh, And then Eliam is the, which is how uh, British people say helium, by the way, Uh, (laughs) is probably the granddaughter of Ahithophel, David's advisor, because Ahithophel is the father of Eliam. So what is that telling us? Even if we discount the two probables, what is that telling us about about Bathsheba? Right, because I mean, you, you need to understand something about David's mighty men. Like this is the elite training force, uh, the 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 elite force. I mean, and David fought with these guys. I mean, they weren't just mighty men in David's army; they were David's mm-hmm. mighty men. 
even if you discount the the two, her probable father and probable grandfather, she probably knew David. Like it's really hard to get around that. Well, at the minimum, even if she didn't have this direct, she's been invited to uh, David's birthday party at least once. Yeah, I, I, I mean, he, like, <laughs> well, especially again, no, knowing the context of who David is and the amount right. that he shared with people, it'd be shocking if she wasn't. But even if she wasn't, you know, we're giving them as much credit as possible. But even if she wasn't, she's the wife of Uriah, and we know a lot about Uriah in relation to David. And how loyal Uriah is to David and how loyal Uriah mm-hmm. is to his men. And that gives Bathsheba a level of intimacy with David, even, even if we discount her knowing him directly. She right. still has an intimate knowledge of him that almost no one has through right. her husband. The, the so, families on the in crowd, even if they're not, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, even if David and Bathsheba weren't, you know, Matt Chandler and whoever he was Instagram messaging, you know, that oh, close, um, it, 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 it was, it, it was one of those things that, uh, that she undoubtedly had, like you said, had knowledge of, of who he was in an intimate way, just because of who her husband was in Uriah. Mm-hmm. But also the, the most likely thing is, is that they probably knew each other. You know, it's one of those things that he was no stranger at the minimum. Right. Right. He was not a disconnected, isolated stranger. He was someone that she knew to some uh, significant degree, whether that's directly through meeting or through the, the amount of knowledge that she had from her husband. But again, it's, it'd be, pretty shocking if they didn't directly know each other it would also be pretty surprising if she wasn't connected to the time when david was on the run with his mighty men right now now we shouldn't put too much into that right right but it does bring us to the next question and that is who is uriah which we we don't know a ton about uriah uh, but do you want to just tell us a little bit about Uriah? Well, we basically covered the the majority of what we know. He was one of David's right. mighty men who was with David, accomplishing these phenomenal tasks while he was on the run from Saul and then became one of his closest uh, closest commanders mm-hmm. and closest friends. And he exemplifies this extreme loyalty but that's really yes. all we know about Uriah as well. And then we know, again, we know we know his context in the story itself. Right. And, and, and you know, I think that's- But Im- that's, that's all. And I think so. It's important now that we, I, I, I'm, we're assuming here, you know who David is. We've kind of been assuming so far that you know <laughs> the, the, the story. I'll, I'll just quickly kind of go over the story uh, in, in just- the biblical, uh, the, the biblical detail, you know, the, the, the five second version mm-hmm. here. And that is essentially David doesn't go off to war with his troops while his troops are off at war. He goes up, he sees Bathsheba bathing and he's like, Whoa, got to have that. And goes and calls for Bathsheba. Uh, they go and commit adultery. And then what ends up happening is, is that Bathsheba gets pregnant David goes, okay, well, I know how to cover this up. Let's bring Uriah back. And, you know, hey, he's been off at war. He's going to go home and then it's all going to be good because even if the, you know, kid ends up having Rudy hair like me and uh, not looking like Uriah, not sure what Uriah looked like, but, uh, you know, it's probably like it, a Hittite. Yeah, probably like a Hittite. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's probably it's all going to be OK. It's basically what David says. Well, Uriah ends up going and having fierce loyalty to David and to his duty uh, to the soldiers and goes in instead of going home, goes and sleeps outside of the uh, the uh, the palace, basically outside of David's house. Is like, I'm staying right here with you, man. I'm I'm with you all the way. And then David's like, well, that didn't work. Um, <laughs> so next story is, or next part of the story is, is, hey, let's go put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle and Uriah will die. And that's what happens. And then, of course, we know that after this, Nathan, the prophet, comes and 
confronts David. David ends up going and repenting after this. There's still great consequence for the sin. Mm -hmm. David ends up marrying Bathsheba too in there. I should point that out. And Bathsheba ends up becoming the uh, mother of Solomon. And so there, there ends up being an incredible redemption story here. Uh, but of course, this is really David's not finest hour and one of his worst hours is is in this story. Um, I don't know if it's really quite his worst hour, at least in the sense of some of that stuff that happened with Absalom is absolutely horrendous. Uh, that'd be another one to go and to look into sometime. But well, and, and David's illegal census that yeah, that Caused that one God to unleash a great vengeance. David yeah. David screwed up pretty bad in multiple points. Right, he he did. Um, now this this isn't to take away anything from David when we're saying any of this, but it is also to go and to look at David as a realist and to how the Bible actually portrays David. Yes, he's a man after God's mm-hmm. own heart, but no, that does not mean he was always perfect. But the woke take a different narrative. Instead of going yeah. and saying that he committed adultery. What do they say happened there? They say that he committed rape. That's what they say. Now, yeah, and I know a lot of people immediately go, the Bible doesn't say that he he raped her. Nope. Which, what what does that mean we should do before we even really examine their claim in its details? It tells us we probably should get some definitions out of the way. Right. I And I think that, it's important that we start with what is rape because when we're looking at this, we need objective terms and mm-hmm. um, the origin of the word rape, it comes from the term of plundering or to pillaging. And it really is this idea of like a violent seizure. Um, now, did it stay in that context? Like that's really where this word started. Has it stayed in that context, Kyle? No, as with uh, all words, language shifts and changes over time. And it's honestly important to know the historicity uh, mm-hmm. of words, the etymology of words, uh, which is why it's it's not always useful to simply look at a dictionary definition, but to look at history right. of definitions. Because in 1828, now it was a process between the word primarily meaning this this idea of plundering to plundering with the idea violent seizure often with the intent of then having forced sexual relation uh but by 1828 we see in webster's dictionary it defined as in a general sense a seizing by violence also a seizing and carrying away by force as females in Mm -hmm. law the carnal knowledge of a woman forcibly and against her will. So again, we see that still has this, this definition of the, the, it really, it's the idea of Viking raids. Right. Becoming I, and I think, raping a town. I think it's interesting because it's not even just the, the idea of the sexual relations, but actually they're saying the carrying mm-hmm. off of the women, um, mm-hmm. w- with that. And, and of course then in law, uh, it does go and tie that to the sexual relations. Yep. And and I think that is an something that's really important just to understand that these definitions that we're going and looking at. And I know most people who are listening to the podcast are going to say, well, I know what rape is. Uh, you know, like everybody knows that. But I think we're going to come and see a little bit of a paradigm shift, a little bit of a shifting as to what this word has been used in our modern context. And then also- yep specifically in the woke context. Yep. And this is this is key because one one weird quirk I've noticed is words definitions of words always seem to get more complicated over time. And it's not even from lack of multiple definitions because honestly rape actually had more definitions historically mm-hmm. whether that's the most unfortunately named plant uh the rinds of grapes after they've been crushed uh, were called rape. <laughs> really weird. And among other definitions. But they, they get complicated. And, and so here's a modern definition. Uh, unlawful sexual intercourse or any other sexual penetration of another person with or without force without the consent of the person subjected to such penetration. Some That's are a, stronger that- than, than this, but... Th- that definition really 
presents a certain trend. Yeah, well, clearly. It, I, I think this this definition really does capture um, the modern time, the the modern era, as to what people believe rape is. Because instead of rape mm-hmm. being this idea of a forcing or or a you know, carrying off of a woman for for the Vikings, um, it really has become this idea of without consent. That's that's mm-hmm. really uh, the key is consent uh, has as where it's it, it has changed. To. Yes, it shifted from violent to with or without force, and it shifted from uh, a violation of the other's will to consent. And there's a difference between will and consent. Yeah, uh, it, it well in. And because of one of the major issues that we see here is in modern times, I'm going to get just slightly graphic. So cover kids' ears. I'm not going to get too graphic. But um, in modern times, it's the idea of going and saying you could have somebody or a couple that are – they're going and making out with each other and they're together. They've said that they're in a relationship with one another. Maybe they've even had consensual sex before, but if somebody wasn't in the mood, even though physiologically they're all making statements that they're in the mood, if they don't go and say, I give you my consent, and there's a regret factor afterwards, then it can be used as a cry for rape. Yeah. Technically in that definition. Consent is a complicated topic because it's been made very complicated, and it might be something that you talk about at another point. Uh, The one last thing I would like to say about definitions is despite this trend in modern definitions to remove certain aspects of it, broaden it, and not open the, the doors specifically in injecting Marxist ideas of power dynamics, but it definitely makes it comfortable. The modern definitions make it much more comfortable for those ideas that that rape isn't necessarily this violent forcing, but could be regret. Uh, But despite the modern definition shifting one way, the modern definitions from Webster's Dictionary for Kids I think is probably the most accurate definition because it really strikes to the the heart of what people understand it to have sexual relations with by force. That's <laughs> I I think that really does capture what most people think of. Mhm. Now, sure. does the Bible <laughs> say anything about it? Like does the Bible give us any any understandings of what rape is in a sin context and responsibility context. Yeah, the Bible does. In fact, it it tells us some stuff in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 through 27. And I forgot to pull that scripture up, but I can pull that up really quick here. Well, I'm not sure we necessarily have time to quote every piece of scripture, but people can look up Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 27. Yeah, that's only a few verses, but the you know the ma- the main thing that goes over is something that is worth probably talking about in a larger segment because it's so counter to modern concepts and modern concepts of consent. Uh it has a very different definition of things. But it it's very pragmatic and how it handles things it it does and do, do you want me to point out what, one of the major things there or should we move on no we need to point out the major thing because there's a there's a blatantly major thing if she doesn't cry out for help mm-hmm. if she doesn't cry out for help now there's one key what's the key that you're missing there if she doesn't cry out where in the city. In the city. But if she is in a in the countryside, in the field where there's no expectation of anyone around, or specifically there wasn't anyone around. Right. The she is given the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. If it's now one thing, the the 
the Bible, the, the passage doesn't explicitly say this, but we know that the biblical commands are there to lay the standard, but there's a reason that there were still judges. Right. Because they had to rightly judge the situation. Mm -hmm. The implication there is to still judge rightly and to have proof that there was actually a forced encounter. Now, right. if you can establish that, and then you establish that they were in an isolated, you know, like out in the middle of a field, benefit of the doubt is given to the woman. Right. And only the man is executed. But if in a city where there's an expectation of other people around and there's no, you know, no one else, there's no witnesses, you can't find a witness despite there being people around. Now, again, judging rightly, what would be, is there exceptions to that? Is there exceptions to? Is there exceptions to her crying out in a city? That could be rightly judged on and not violate that command. And I'm only mentioning this just to be blatantly clear so that people don't get confused. I I know Sam's I, over there thinking now because he's Yeah, well I, I went through and made made sure that I'm not didn't miss something really in the in the passage. Um that, that was just blatant that was pointing out. I, I would think that there could be some exceptions. Um, like, you know, if you had a knife would be one. Um, but no, oh, you're going the wrong direction. I'm going the no, wrong direction. No, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is there are exceptions. If you could, if they could prove that the woman had other people around, even if they couldn't see and she didn't cry out, what's something that you could judge that wouldn't violate that command oh, to then oh. execute both? That, that it would wouldn't... be if she was physically unable if she oh, had yeah. been knocked unconscious, yes, or yeah. if she had been gagged, again, it's the necessary. Yes. Yeah, God's commands in the Old Testament assume right judgment. Right, right, yeah, and, and and it would be that whole you'd have to be capable. Yes, just like what you're saying there. Mm -hmm. um, they assume. I was the command that. assumes the capability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw you kind of like your wheels turning. Yeah, but now why why is that important to mention, Sam? Why are these these clarifications important to mention? You, you know, I think it's really important because it's in it's indicative of the character of God, that God is just, that he is righteous, that mm -hmm. he is caring about these things. And we're really going to see that come into play, that the woke don't take that into account, that they don't find these implications. We, Boy, I don't know if I really should say this because this would open up a whole can, right? Uh, it, it's we a good can. several though. cans already. Yeah, but but this this is, you know, when we're looking at scripture, you, you know, we, we like to say that politics is downstream of culture or culture is downstream of politics or, you know, however you want to go and look at those kind of things. But scripture flows from the character of God. And yes, mm -hmm. we do. We do learn about the character of God, obviously, through scripture. But it's one of those things of we can always assume that God will not violate his own character. And this is a pretty important aspect of hermeneutics. And mm -hmm. I, and so in implication, we can't imply that God is violating his own character with where we come to the conclusion of what a passage means or the interpretation of a passage. Well, it's also why it's critical to dig things to their conclusion. When you right. come up with an interpret, when you've you know applied things properly to a passage, and you come to a conclusion, and you go, "Wait a second, this conclusion seems to be to not jive perfectly with God's character or some other aspect of the biblical narrative or God Himself." That's probably an indication that you've missed something, right? And that you need to slow down and read the passage more carefully, putting things properly into their context. Now, implications that run contrary to God's word and God's character are probably what we should talk about right now. Yeah, you know, we probably should. In fact, on the the confusion specifically of how the woke confused the issue. And I think 
there's a really obvious one, and that's with power dynamics. Because, mm-hmm. you, you know, we talked about the definition of rape. And we saw where it started. We saw where it, it morphed. Um, we, we, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. But the woke even take it a step further because they infuse Marxist ideology into this where they're going and saying, well, it's rape, not even because it wasn't consensual, but because Bathsheba wouldn't have been able to consent because of the gap of power dynamic uh, or, or position between David being a king and Bathsheba, you know, just being the wife of a mighty man. Um, what do you got to say about that, Kyle? Well, I mean, right off the bat, it, it, it's ridiculous. It's got so many holes and so many problems, and it's not coming from God's law. Uh, nowhere do we see—I mean, that's unequal weights and measures, mm-hmm. 100%. And that's contrary to what, da- what David, what God has clearly laid out in Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 27. It doesn't—God doesn't care about your position of power. He cares about what you do in the situation. Right. I mean, use a, a counterexample. I said, I don't know why exactly said counterexample, but use another example of someone who was in a powerless situation, yet and doing the right thing meant not just risking her life, but preemptively laying down her life, coming to terms with the fact that the likely outcome was death. And then going, okay, if I receive my life back, great. It's Esther. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful story about doing what's right, even if it might cost you your life. Yes. And she gives us the example of what do you do when you're put in a position position between obedience and death? You choose obedience, even if it leads, leads to death. Right. It, so Bathsheba still had agency. Yes. It, man, this is such an important thing. We should do a whole podcast on this because, I mean, this is diving into situation ethics and how situation ethics mm. is, is used so many times. It ignores um, the, the moral, obvi- I would say the moral obvious uh, or, or the moral obligation is really what I should be saying. But it's... Um, you know, the example that's often given uh, by Joseph Fletcher, the father of situation ethics, was a, a Nazi with a gun. And this whole idea of uh, if he used a couple of different ones. One, if Jews in the concentration camp, if they got pregnant, if the women got pregnant, they were then released. Well, then he would go and say, well, then that uh, adultery was justifiable. Well, it's not justifiable. And why is it not justifiable? Well, because they have the obligation to do what's right, and he's always missing, and people are always missing the fact of who did wrong. Well, who did wrong was the Nazi with a gun. <laughs> That's the one who did wrong, right? Uh, and and so if they were to go into if you were to go into lose your life for standing for what's right, you didn't do what was wrong. It was the bad guy with a gun who did wrong. That's yep. who would be the one who would be on the moral hook for this. And, yeah. and this is the exact type of scenario when we go and we, we see this, that they're trying to paint this type of a picture of going and saying, well, Bathsheba didn't cry out in the city because if she would have done that, David would have killed her because he's the king. And so therefore it's, it's rape because of this. Well, no, Bathsheba still had the obligation to do what was right. And then David would have done wrong but we see that's not the scenario at all that's given in scripture. No, they're they're assuming the the I almost said outcome, but it's not outcome. They're assuming the situation. They're assuming that it was rape, reading that into the passage, and then finding specific words or phrases uh that they can pull out to be some kind of like subtle uh like a cluing in. Like God, God, I, God couldn't just say it out loud. He had to kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It was rape, right? And, and ultimately, you know, Kyle, what they're getting at is that they're they're going and saying they're finding that David is guilty in this. And let me just go mm-hmm. ahead and say something. David is guilty in this story. 
He is guilty yep. in this narrative. But that doesn't mean that just because David has obvious guilt. I, I mean, Nathan comes and says, you are the man, right? You are the man. There's that you, you, it doesn't get more, hey, in your face, David, you're guilty than that. Yep. But just because David's guilty, does that mean that Bathsheba's innocent? No. I mean, they're employing this either or fallacy. They're employing this idea that um, different degrees of responsibility in a situation mean that there's this all or nothing style of guilt. Again, it relies it relies not on God's word. It relies on Marxist ideas, op oppressor, oppressed, power dynamics. You are either a victim or a victimizer. Is Now, David committed a ton of sins in this. Mm -hmm. Ton of sins. But even in strictly him and Bathsheba, just in them committing adultery. Does David bear more responsibility in that situation? In just in the situation as a whole? No, and just specifically them committing adultery with each other. Does David bear more responsibility in this situation? I would say he he does bear more responsibility because he's the king. He's shepherding. Yeah. He's supposed to be shepherding the people. He's supposed to be leading. Well, I, I, I'd go even beyond that. Uh, I'd say that, well, honestly, I'd argue that at a certain level, there's something intrinsic about being a man yes. that would put you into a higher degree of responsibility mm -hmm. for an adulterous situation. But he's also the husband, well, frankly, of more than one wife, which actually is part of the problem. Right. But as a husband, he also bears a, another degree of responsibility as well. And yes, she's a wife, but as the protector and provider of his own family, he's violating that with mm -hmm. another woman. Again, he has multiple layers of responsibility that I, I would say, even in that immediate circumstance, he bears more responsibility. He carries a greater sin. Right. But that has no impact on Bathsheba. No, it, she's it, responsible well, for her actions, not David's. Right. And you, you know, this is what, just something that's, that's really big. I think to go into understand, let's, let's take it out of the context of, of sexual relations here for just a moment, put it within the context of parenting. Okay. But with, with children specifically. Okay. So, uh, I I've got a couple of young kids, you've got a couple of young kids, so I'm sure that you have dealt with this situation before. Kyle, where all of a sudden you have one kid crying because their sibling hit them. I know Don't where you're going. Hit your brother, right? That's what we want to go and say because it, it seems like it would solve the problem. But then you realize the next time maybe that you see it, that you see the full picture of what happened, and it was one sibling. We'll just perhaps say that his name's Henry goes up and he takes, we'll just say his brother's name is Thomas. By the way, I've got two sons named Henry and Thomas. Goes up and, and takes the toy. Yeah, just a coincidence. This is just a, maybe this could happen. Goes and takes the toy of Thomas. You know, Henry goes and takes the toy that Thomas is playing with and steals it from him. And then Thomas goes and smacks his brother right in the face. You know, just theoretically, you know, that that could happen. Well, what's the thing? We could say, don't hit your brother, but that doesn't mean what Henry, theoretically, what was doing was right because he was also stealing. They both had a part in the wrong and neither one of them were right. Now, there might have been one uh, instance that one of them had a more severe problem that was going on or one that needed to be dealt with right then and there because it's not good to hit your brother. But on the other side, there's a big heart issue right there with covetousness and stealing mm -hmm. that also needs to mm -hmm. be dealt with. That's just as serious to go and to deal with the sin ultimately as well too. And they're both bearing guilt. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating because it's such a hard concept for real little children 
to understand. They don't have that moral development yet. And so the question- uh, they, they haven't, yeah, they haven't come to the, the understanding, of, uh, the mental capacity to actually be convicted of sin. And they don't, they don't the, get what, it. Yeah, they don't understand what was, but what was your part? You know, ask yeah, they don't, they don't get it. They, they look at it and go, basically, because of what they did, I can do whatever I want to them, and it's justified. And, and I mean, I, I hate to compare the woke to a child who has not had any kind of a conscience developed properly uh, yet, or or it's just in the beginning stages of having their conscience developed properly, uh, but it's not fully developed at this point in time, and they're not feeling the, you know, they're not understanding that conviction of sin uh, quite then and there, or maybe just understanding the conviction of sin. Um, but it seems like the woke can't look at Bathsheba and say, what was her part? No, they can't. Uh, I mean, and people have, have directly addressed this. Another reason we're not bringing up a specific example is because there's frankly too many examples yeah. of this teaching. I mean, uh, I, it's all I threw a rock place. the other day and it hit three woke preachers who was preaching on this on Sunday. It was crazy. Yeah, it, it's... I didn't which is why we finally, we're finally talking about it because how many times it's been brought up it keeps it won't die right but they they make it very explicit that not only is Bathsheba innocent but it's inappropriate because of her status as a victim because of her status as an oppressed person that it's inappropriate to ask the question is she did she do anything wrong you know, you bring up an interesting thing, Kyle, when you say that we're not uh, showing any examples of this, and it really makes me think this. We're going to put this on the listeners. How about you guys send us links of sermons of woke people preaching this passage? Go ahead and send it to us at contactwokepedia at gmail.com. Once again, that's contactwokepedia at gmail.com. I'll, I'll go further than that. If you, if you listening do that and we get enough of them, I will take the time to edit a compilation of preachers, teachers, uh, you know, whoever it is making these claims. Right. I will edit a compilation together and then put that out on our Wikipedia archive channel. If you didn't know, we have a channel called Wikipedia archive. Yes, you can go look at it. It's where we just occasionally dump compilation videos and other things that we use. But yeah, I'll go and make that for you. I, it, but this is how confident we are that this is out there. We're going and saying that if you actually go and look for it with any kind of amount uh, of effort, minimal effort, you're going to find, you're going to find it. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one of those where it's like, we're, we're just not even worried about it. So yeah. Yeah. So we, we've established kind of the woke and we, we've already because we couldn't help ourselves. We've already started to tear it apart a little bit. But let's put it into let's put the passage into proper context and show how that proper context, not just the knee-jerk reaction that shows that it's wrong, but the proper context just obliterates it. So who is this passage about? We've it's, already made the claim that it's about David and Uriah, not Bathsheba. I, I've 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 changed my mind, Kyle. I've changed my mind. This you changed about, your mind? Oh. This is about Bathsheba. Oh, no. In Nathan. That's what this passage is about. So Bathsheba and Nathan. Yeah, we'll go with that. Survey says? No, but... (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. The easiest way to establish main characters, or at least get an indication, is to look at how many times they're mentioned. Right. Specifically mentioned by name. Because Mm -hmm. when someone's name's brought up, it's trying to communicate a message. David is mentioned 37 times. So would it be would it be surprising or controversial to say that David is obviously the primary character? I, I mean, we need to see the comparison to everybody else, but considering this is the first one that we mentioned because it's mentioned the most, obviously he's the main character. Obviously. Then Uriah... 
is mentioned by name 23 times. You know, that's really surprising because even if you get out of the woke narrative, most people don't look at this as David and Uriah. Most people look at this as David and Bathsheba. Oh, Bathsheba, then we should get to that. But first, we have someone else. Joab, David's general, is mentioned by name 11 times. Wait a minute. I think you must have obviously skipped Bathsheba, right? If you're going in order, or no, maybe no, she's see, mentioned more. Maybe you're saying we're not her necessarily we're not necessarily going in order. We're not necessarily going in order. Nathan the prophet is mentioned seven times. Bathsheba must be mentioned like forty times, right? We're, we're saving we're saving it. So Bathsheba is mentioned by name. Now she's mentioned several times, but it's always the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah putting an emphasis on Uriah over Bathsheba in that statement. But she's mentioned by name twice. twice. Once at the beginning of the story, once at the end of the story. In fact, Bathsheba is only mentioned by name 11 times in the entire Bible. Wait a minute, how many times do you say That's Joab? That's as many times. Eleven times in this single passage. That's crazy. So the even when she's mentioned in the the genealogy of Jesus, it's not she. Her name isn't used. It's the wife of Uriah. It's not even Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. It's just the wife of Uriah. Yeah. I mean, do you think God is making a point about who this story is about? Right. I And I'm sure that the woke are going to go and say, well, this just proves that it was a male-dominated world in that Bathsheba was very oppressed. But okay, if you want to pull that narrative, then, then the Bible isn't God's word. Right. Because it's no longer perfect. It's reflecting, it's simply reflecting the culture. It's reflecting biases, negative biases. It's oppressive. And if it's all those things, it's no longer sufficient, it's no longer inerrant, it's no longer trustworthy, it's no longer God's word. God is not who he says he is. There is no salvation. You are dead in your sins. Yes, it's man, that serious. It, it is. I, I mean, we got Kyle fired up right now. And so while we got him fired up, I I just got to say, you got any verses that destroy this this woke narrative? Like, Like, keep going, man. So we could do an entire study on this, but let's bring up a couple verses. I, I want to bring up, and then Sam, if you want to talk about the, the next verse, but I want to bring up 2 Samuel 12, 9. So near the very end of uh, this this passage, or at least the, the passage that covers the main bulk of this story. So 2 Samuel 12, 9. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? to do evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. God lays out clearly, he doesn't say every single detail of David's sin, but he lays out the categories in which David has sinned. Right. Primarily, and first among that, is he murdered. And God is actually making a pretty bold statement there about murder. Mm -hmm. David is held responsible as if he's the one that stabbed Uriah. Uriah. That's an important thing to notice. He's held, he's held accountable for murder, and he's held accountable for adultery. And in this circumstance, the wording of it, you cannot play word games. It is clearly labeling it as adultery. You can go to the original languages. You can read everything in it. And it's clear in the phraseology, in this statement, it's labeled as adultery. So he's held in the category of murder and the category of adultery. I, I would say if we're going to add one more um you, you know, category to this, it wouldn't even be rape as the next one. I think it's really obvious that the next one would be covetousness. He would have been coveting Uriah's mm. wife. Like, like I mean, that, that would is, that would be the well, the third 
like category, if you had to like keep going on categories of sin? Well, I, I think you could probably put the, the adultery underneath the category of, of covetousness, because what what is the example of covetousness in the in the Ten Commandments? Looking and seeing somebody's wife is one of them. Yep. Which is, that's actually a relevant thing to this story. We didn't even bring up the Ten Commandments and how there's uh, specific violations mm-hmm. and it's teaching through that. But this verse so lays out David's sin that you have to do some serious, serious work to get around it. Mm-hmm. So while the door is already, you know, we've got a vault door on a time lock at a bank that is closing and there's a millimeter gap. Uh, Sam, give us a verse that shuts that remaining millimeter. Yeah. So first Kings 15, five says this, right? Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and has not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of raping Bathsheba. Wait, that's not what it said. It says, except in the matter of Uriah, the Hittite. What is the narrative? Do you need of this a story? clear? Yeah, you need a clear indication that it's about David and Uriah. Uriah. And in fact, where this is a synopsis of David's life by God. This is God going yes. and saying, "This is the synopsis of David's life." He doesn't even mention Goliath here, which is kind of amazing. He goes and he says, "Look, David did really good, except you know he really messed this up in his relationship with Uriah." Hmm. So both in the the laying out of the sin, it's put the emphasis on Uriah, and it's put the emphasis on the sexual sin being adultery. And then when it's being recapped later, David's life is being recapped. Uh, he's being complimented for his faith, which is also pretty telling that the the out of all of David's sins, the one that God focuses on is his sin towards right. Uriah. Because this wasn't David's again, only major sin. Like he had other national no. sins. Yeah. Literally, God says, don't do a census. And what does David go do? He goes and does a census. And does a census. And it causes a, uh, well, a, it causes a, a lot of people to die. Yeah, right. <laughs> but again, God makes it clear. This is about what you did to Bathsheba. No, this is about what you did to Uriah. It, it, and there's, are there more verses that we could go over? Could we spend another hour going over verses that specifically oh. disprove that? easily but but i think that this one's really important because it if it was a a a rape that was happening rape categorically the punishment for it is a capital crime it it is a crime that that is worthy of death and so that would obviously be mentioned here with murder because it's it's the same earthly punishment and yet, now, where it, is the sin? It's that you killed Uriah, you stole Uriah's wife, you mm, coveted mm-hmm. Uriah's wife. These were the sins that God was pointing out. And that I know at least one person has thought in their mind, but wait, isn't adultery also a capital offense? But who are you sinning against when you commit adultery? You're, I mean, you're sinning against your own spouse, but you're also sinning against the other. You're not sinning against the person you committed adultery with. You're sinning against their spouse. You're sinning against who? Yeah, you're, you're Uriah. You're, right. It's the idea of that. There's a, there's covenants that are being broken. It, it's mm-hmm. not it's not the joining together that's. Uh, the, I mean, you are sinning against that person as well because you're not loving them in the way that you you should. But the greater yeah, sin is in the yeah. breaking of the covenants to where the actual um, relationships, the, the actual, uh, you, you had a duty too. It, it, David had both a duty to his, his wife, wives, unfortunately, uh, at, at that point in time, the covenants that he made, but he also had a duty to go and to uphold Uriah's covenant mm-hmm. as well. Especially doubly that. so as king. Right. And just thinking about that relationship of their friends, like good friends, mm-hmm. like so good friends that Uriah decided to stay at David's door instead of going home to be with Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. But I think that's maybe the point of the story, if we really get into this, that it's really David and Uriah. 
What do we see about Uriah? What do we see about this character in this contrast with David and Uriah? We see an almost unrealistic, almost comical level of faith and loyalty in Uriah. I mean, Uriah is, if it was a novel, it'd be considered over the top. Right. Hyperbolic with how how Uriah is described, both as a mighty man. I mean, those guys are described in crazy ways, but also just in his level of faith. We kind of read that and go, people don't act that way. Right. And that's the point. It was a special kind of faith. But who is who in their life reflects that special kind of faith? Who in the story besides Uriah reflected that faith? Well, not in this story, but yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, think of David and Goliath, right? Think of uh, David, the man after God's own heart, the man who wouldn't mm-hmm. go and kill King Saul when he's right there. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you're, it's almost like Uriah lived right next to David during a key part in his life, saw the example of David and decided to emulate that and say, I'm going to have that kind of loyalty, that kind of honor that mm-hmm. kind of commitment oh, that yeah. David had. Yeah, and that's, it shows... It, it, that's what's heartbreaking about this story. It is, yeah. is literally, you can clearly see in this passage, David is Uriah's hero, like a, a earthly hero in, in a good way. And his hero doesn't just fall from... Uh, fr- from a, a, a position, you, you know, that, that he was probably put in his mind, but he falls in such a way that it is directed at Uriah of he took what Uriah had. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately it's what Uriah lost his life for. And Uriah was exemplifying what he had learned from David in the yeah. positive. And it's interesting because David really is almost acting like King Saul in so mm-hmm. many ways. And instead of going and having the loyal obedience, he really has the complacent disobedience. And then the trying to cover things up and just to do things his own way instead of, excuse me, immediately repenting. Yeah. He needed a, uh, he needed a wake up call. He was on a, dangerous path, one that is so contrary to the faithful man that we've seen. And the wake-up call that he got resulted in him losing four sons over time. He he pronounced a fourfold judgment on the man who stole the sheep, and God would kill the, the wife, I mean, kill the son of the adultery, but then would also take four of David's sons prematurely in total. Right. And he lost one of his closest friends. He lost one of his best allies. Whew. I mean, this is quite the wake up call. It really is. But one of the things, and we don't have a ton of time to really dive into this, but one of the things I think that it's important that we touch on is the redemption of the story because it's almost like the woke stop reading. In <laughs> fact, some, a lot of times I don't think that they even read that there's a punishment of the baby being killed because we would go and see that if, I, I mean, if Bathsheba is you, you know innocent in all of this, I mean, this would be going and saying, well, we're going to punish Bathsheba, that God's going to go and punish Bathsheba the, the one potential blessing out of this, which, which if you really wanted to get into the implications as to why a lot of the woke go and support abortion, I suppose we could really get into some of that of not understanding justice, right? Hmm. But hmm. you take this and you realize what ends up happening is, is that David remorsefully weeps and repents of his sin. Now, this doesn't mean that everything was perfect afterwards. It doesn't mean there's not consequences for a sin. This doesn't mean that David was perfect or anything like that, 
uh, even afterwards. In fact, it seems like he he almost had a little bit too much of a paradigm shift and became almost like a, a, a falling into some kind of a hyper grace. But that's a story for another day. Um, and that's why, you know, Absalom and, and all this yeah. that kind of stuff happens. But we see that David repents. God forgives David. And then ultimately there is this incredible blessing that comes from this, that Bathsheba ends up becoming in the line of Jesus Christ because Solomon ends up becoming the, the, the next king after David. It becomes the one who rightly takes the throne. I mean, this is an incredibly redemptive story. Mm-hmm. But once again, what do the woke do? They reject forgiveness. They cling to bitterness. And we can see that in this story because instead of focusing in on the redemption that was brought, both for David and Bathsheba from the sin that they had, what do they cling to? This bitterness that this is really just a big me too story in scripture. Yeah, it's... They take a story that's already misrepresented far too often, made this story simply of David and Bathsheba, David committing adultery, and they wring out what little meaning there was left and make it into a story that has no hope, has no forgiveness, has no anything, that portrays God ultimately as someone who is cruel. Right. And, you know, not the, the Bible does record history. Yes. And not all history is good. There's a lot of brutal stuff. Mm-hmm. But this is not simply a story of history. This is a story that has uh, a conclusion to it. It has re- repentance, redemption. It has um, direct confrontation. Nathan is exists in the story as God's representative in the story to convict, condemn, and confront. And so when you, you ring out that, when you turn it into the woke narrative— Boy, does it blow up a lot of things. It really does. Boy, is it problematic. And it's, you know, it's not just speculation. They have to speculate in the rape. But it's a type of speculation that is contrary to God's word. Right. Now, you know, we've we've already gone more than enough time. uh, So we'll do this incredibly, incredibly quickly. Because there's some whatabouts. Mm-hmm. And we'll just talk super briefly about one whatabout, which is the idea that kings in the ancient Near East had a much different type of authority and power than we think of with kings. Because we think of medieval kings that right. at least nominally were under the uh were under God. Now, were they functionally often not but they at least had some sort of moral restraint kings back then were under a were a much different style again we mentioned esther and we see it there we see the kind of authority that kings had you could not approach them unannounced you would be killed in fact it's why solomon's story of uh the prostitutes coming before him with the child it's why it's brilliant and shows his wisdom is because the mother of the child is willing to throw away her life. Right. Because the defy of the king was death. So she she would have been killed if she would have resisted David, right? Well, one, that doesn't change her responsibility. We already mentioned that. But two, go back to what we know about Bathsheba and by extension Uriah. David was no stranger. He wasn't a man that she ate, you know, she was a man, he was a man that she knew the goodness of Mm -hmm. that at the minimum, her husband had told her the the stories of this great King David, this great and loyal man, this, the man that wouldn't even kill Saul. Right. That allowed God to take his vengeance. But beyond that, David was very much a King of the people. Uh, and his reign, particularly early on, was really atypical of kings at the time. Yes. Yeah, really atypical. And if you go, if you go uh, read First Samuel six, uh, you'll you'll see a blatant story of that, where David dances before the uh, the ark when it's being brought into Jerusalem, 
and uh, Michael, Saul's daughter, who's one of David's wives, is disgusted at the way that David acts. Basically, she 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 felt he wasn't acting kingly. He was right. he was not living up to the the title that period of times image of how a king should act, aka. Right. She didn't feel that he was acting like her dad. Yep. And, and you you know what? David called her out on it, and God punished her. Mm-hmm. And she, it's, it tells us that. It tells us that she was punished, and she was barren from then on. Right. So again, David is so contrary to the image of, a, of kings at that time. He was a king of the people. He was someone who was good. He was someone the people knew was good. He was someone that someone like Bathsheba had extra knowledge of he was good. So to say to use the the idea that because kings were more powerful back then and defy the king was death, that doesn't even have biblical support for David. Right. Beyond that, it doesn't change her responsibility. Right. So no there's no world where this woke narrative works. No, none at all. And so when you think of this this narrative in scripture we hope that instead of thinking of it, obviously, in the woke way, we hope that you think about this in the biblical way, that it is a story of David and Uriah and contrasting David's disobedient complacency with Uriah's loyal faith that he had. And we hope that you can see that and then, of course, see the redemption that comes from this as well. But thank you well, for listening. Go read the to- Psalms. Yeah. Go read the Psalms. Who does David rely on God. to redeem him? Yeah, he he relies on God and the promise of the coming Messiah. That's where his hope is. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening today, and remember to check us out at enemieswithinthechurch.com. Go ahead and check out that whole project. Lots of fun stuff that's coming up with that. And, uh, well, Kyle, what do they need to remember? They need to remember to don't go woke. Otherwise, you'll... Turn God into a monster and not be able to see God's redemption. 